In this quarter, we've been looking at practical Christian living and things that should be just basic principles of the Christian life and our daily living. And today, if you notice the title of our message is Practical What? Prayer. Practical Prayer. A prayer is one of those things that, at least, I don't know how you've felt about it, but sometimes I feel like, what do you need to learn about? You just bow your head and you talk and then you've finished and then you're done praying and you have prayed and that's all you need to know about it. But the Bible actually teaches a lot. The the Lord himself taught us a lot about prayer, and we're going to learn those lessons by his grace today. But before we study anything in God's word, we need to begin with a word of prayer. So let's bow our heads as we begin. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this beautiful day. Thank you for Sabbath, and now thank you for this opportunity to once again study your word in Christian fellowship. Lord, help us to understand that word by the power of your Holy Spirit, for spiritual things are only spiritually discerned. So we ask you to be our teacher today, Lord. Open our eyes to see things in your word, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would, please turn to Luke chapter 11. The third gospel in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke chapter 11. We're going to be looking at verse 1. In fact, Luke chapter 11 will be home base for us today in our study of God's Word. But we find something in Luke chapter 11, beginning in verse 1, that will launch us into our study today. Luke chapter 11, starting with verse 1. Scripture reads, Now it came to pass, as he, and of course the he in this case being Jesus, As he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, that one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. Now, it's not a very long passage, and of course, we're going to look at what Jesus responds to this request, but let's look at the context, let's look at the scenario that's being described here in the gospel. It says it came to pass as he was praying. Notice it doesn't say as they were praying, in fact. It's very clear that they come upon him while he is praying. Jesus is not with his disciples. He's not with the multitude. He's having solitary, personal prayer. As he was praying, and where was he praying? It just simply says, in a certain place. In a certain place. When he ceased, that one of his disciples said to him. So you get the picture that Christ is here alone in a particular place having personal prayer time. And his disciples come upon him, and it doesn't say that they interrupted him. And it doesn't say when he saw them coming, he stopped. It just says that he was praying, and when he ceased, they asked him a question. The implication is there, and we'll see from Spirit of Prophecy, that makes it patently clear that Christ was praying with his, to his Father, communing with his Heavenly Father. And though the disciples come up, he doesn't like interrupt and stop everything and put the prayer on hold and then talk to them. He just keeps going until he's done. And then they ask him that question, Lord, teach us to pray. Now, let me ask you a question. Is it possible to imagine the disciples had never prayed before? Of course they prayed before. They'd probably been praying their whole lives. They had prayers for food. They'd had prayers at church time. They had prayers, probably personal prayer time. But something about Christ's prayer, the way that Christ prayed, something about his prayer, conversation with his heavenly father struck them as so significant they said lord teach us that what you're doing with that prayer we don't have 
And that's not to say that you have prayer and we don't, but the way you have the significance, the quality, the caliber of prayer that you experience, we don't have. And so they make this humble request, Lord, teach us to pray. By the way, I make reference to the spirit of prophecy. In Christ's Object Lessons, page 140, we read about this encounter. Christ's disciples were much impressed by his prayers and by his habit of communion with God. So notice it doesn't say they were impressed with this one particular prayer, and they said, wow, that was astonishing. Tell us how to do that. But they were impressed by his prayers, plural, and by his habit of communion with God. Apparently in Christ's life, much like going to the synagogue on Sabbath day, prayer was just a custom he did. You see in Scripture when Christ would go to the synagogue, it says, as was his custom. And you notice he didn't go to the synagogue only when it was nice weather, and it was only when people were nice to him. In fact, most of the time, people were not nice to Christ at church. But he went and just did it anyway because that's what he did. It's just part of who he was. It was part of a lifestyle of living that he had developed. And apparently, in the same way, prayer, personal communion, not just public prayer or prayer when it's time to raise the dead or make a miracle happen or or feed the 5,000 or anything like that, Though those public prayers are important, apparently Christ had a habit of praying personally to his heavenly Father. And again, the disciples were so much impressed by his prayers and by his habit of communion with God that one day, after a short absence from their Lord, so apparently they'd been away for a little bit, doesn't tell us how long, but they found him absorbed in supplication, seeming unconscious of their presence seeming unconscious of, his, of their presence. Think about that. They came up and were noticing he was praying, and he didn't notice them in return. He just kept praying. He continued praying, and then it tells us, aloud. Now, that's an interesting thought. I've often kind of wondered, you know, by the way, what, the, what he's about to teach them, we commonly call the Lord's Prayer. But clearly, that wasn't the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer was the one he was praying that they interrupted or that they witnessed, right? And our prayer is the one he gives us as a template, right? But how would we know what, for instance, the most famous prayer in Scripture is John chapter 17, where the Lord prays for himself and he prays for his disciples. And he says, I not only pray for them, but those who will believe in me through their word, you know? How did they know what he said? Well, apparently, part of his habit was not only to pray, but also to pray aloud. And so they were listening in. They were able to hear his communion with his father, not just see him in a posture or something, but they heard his words, and something about that communication between himself and his heavenly father was so striking to them that they said, Lord, teach us to do that. Seeming unconscious of their presence, he continued praying aloud. The hearts of the disciples were deeply moved. And as he ceased praying, they exclaimed, Lord, teach us to pray. So there's a couple things I want to take away still to go here. Notice that Christ prayed not just publicly, but also privately. It was part of a habit. And think about this. Christ had no sin to confess. Yet he still needed to pray. If Christ, our sinless substitute, needed prayer in his life, friends, how much more do we need personal prayer in our lives? Think about it. He didn't have to come and say, oh, I've messed up again today. Let me start with all the... He didn't have to go there, but still he needed 
the communion with his Father. How much more do we need it? Also, again, while public prayer is important, I want to highlight the fact that he was alone in a certain place praying to his Father. If you go back to the book of Matthew, Jesus gives more instruction on prayer, and he gives an example of what not to do when you pray. Matthew chapter 6, we're going to begin with verse 5, the first book in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 6, and we'll begin with verse 5. He teaches, interesting enough, listen to the phrasing, and when you pray, you shall not... So whatever he's about to say should not be a part of our prayer life. Okay? When you pray, you shall not pray like the hypocrites. For they love to pray, how? Standing where? In the synagogues and on the street corners. In big public places. Now, is there anything wrong with praying in public? Of course not. But what is their purpose in doing it? Their prayer time was more of a show time. They love to be in the synagogue up front, having those big orations, or on the street corner, even these big grand pious declarations. For they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. It's all they get. Sure, people love them and esteem them, and that's it. But, now verse 6, in contrast to that, but... You, when you pray, go where? Into your room. And notice this. And when you have shut your door. So don't just go in your room, but like allow people. No, no, no. Come on and shut the door. Find that place, that certain place for you to communion with your Father. A personal place of secret prayer. When you've shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place. By the way, there's, you, there is no place where you can be truly alone away from the Lord, is there? David would talk about this in the Psalms. If I go on the mountaintop, you're there. If I go in the depths, you're there. If I go into the sea, you're there. There's no place that can be hidden from God. Now, I can get away from you, praise the Lord. Right? And you can get away, get away from me, you know, proportionally praising the Lord. But the goal is not to escape Reality is to come in touch with the ultimate reality, which is the continual presence of God with us. And he says, go into the secret place. Shut the door. Don't have to be a big proclamation or a big demonstration. Pray to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Now, the reward will be coming, as Christ already said, behold, I'm coming soon, and my reward is with me. It doesn't mean that you're going into, it's like, all right, I'm going to spend my 10 minutes in prayer and I'm going to get 10 hours worth of, of blessings out of it. No, 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 no. It's not an exchange. It's not a transaction. It's communication with your heavenly Father. And he also, by the way, ironically goes on in verse 7, and when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words, just saying the same words over and over and over and over, a rote just a test, a, a ceremony, a ritual. He says, don't do that. He says in verse 8, Therefore, do not be like them. For your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask Him. And then he says in verse 9, the same thing that we're going to see in Luke 11 when we go back to it, In this manner, 
therefore pray. So oftentimes, I find it greatly ironic. Now, we should know the Lord's Prayer. It's a part of Scripture. It's the template for our prayer life that we should follow. But was Christ giving the Lord's Prayer to be a set of words that you say over and over and over and over again? No, he specifically said, do not do that. I'm giving you this template simply as that. A model for instruction that you can develop and put in practice in your own life. And so I find it greatly ironic when we take the Lord's Prayer, we do it word for word, verbatim, over and over and over and over. And God said, I'm giving you this so that you don't do that. Now, there's nothing wrong with saying, nothing wrong with reciting it. But more than just the words, he's looking for an attitude of prayer and an understanding and a communication with our Heavenly Father. So we go back to Luke chapter 11, and the request of the disciples was, Lord, teach us to pray. Now, the, in- the interesting thing I think, at least I see there, is apparently prayer is something that can be taught and therefore learned. It is not something, apparently, that just comes naturally. Though we should pray to our, God, our Heavenly Father in a natural manner, it's not uncommon to have people who don't know how to pray. You say, have you prayed today? Well, I, I'm not sure. I, I think I had a blessing for the food. I mean, we did. I might have said something as I was going out the door. I, I mean, how do you know what makes a good prayer? How do you know if it's good? And they looked at their lives and they said, what we have isn't like what you have. Lord, teach us to pray. So the Lord's Prayer was given as a template, an example of the type of prayer Christians should pray. So let's look at it. Luke chapter 11, verse 2 now. So he said to them, when you pray, say, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Now there's an interesting, I don't know if you see the tension there, but it's an interesting juxtaposition of two concepts. We address God as our Father, but we must remember that he is in heaven and his name is hallowed. So there's a reverence that goes along with approaching the Lord, but a familiarity that comes through Jesus Christ. Okay? So when we go to God, we're going to our Father, so we should feel comfortable but not presumptuous. Does that make sense? So he invites us to come boldly, but remember we're coming boldly before a throne of grace. So he says, when you pray, keep in mind these things. Say, our Father who's in heaven, hallowed be your name. There needs to be this balance between overly formal, where we have to put on airs and dress just right and say just the right words and approach God with just the right tone. The Lord isn't asking for formality, but he also isn't looking for over-familiarity when you're like, hey, what's up? Slow down. (laughs) He's God on a throne, and he's our heavenly Father at the same time. And God says... They are Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Now look at verse 2. I'm still inside of verse 2. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now this to me is a standing rebuke to my life. By the way, there's going to be several things in this particular message and other messages in this series that are a rebuke to my life. I am not standing up here opening God's word and saying, here's what God's word says and here's what it looks like lived out. Christ is what it looks like lived out. And as we look to Christ, we all learn lessons of where we need to grow. Amen? But notice what he says here. As soon as you address your heavenly Father, our first idea should be to seek his kingdom and his will and not our own. 
But how many of us completely turn that around? We say something, we some introductory statement, Lord, thank you for this day. Now, here's what I need. And we start about, here's, here's the problems I have, here's the needs that I have, here's the wants that I have, desires that I have. And there's nothing wrong with having needs or desires or wants or having your will. But the question is, who's got the priority in that hierarchy? Apparently, according to Christ, God's will comes first and ours follows along, not the other way around. It was Christ who otherwise, and, and the, there's an interesting, by the way, if you want to break this down sometime, you can look at this model prayer and compare it to the Sermon on the Mount, and they're very similar. That Christ includes this in the Sermon on the Mount, and you'll see these ideas embedded throughout that beautiful sermon. So basically, he's saying uh, this is a template for how to pray those concepts and those principles. He says, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And it was in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus told the people, seek ye first, what? The kingdom of God. And then all these things. Is there anything wrong with all these things? No. But we should make sure that our will is in harmony with his will, and then all these things should be added. And we might even find that some of the things we think we need, we think we want, he knows we don't. So instead of seeking our will first, we should say, Lord, what is your will? And how can I conform to it? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, in English, that phrasing, something as something else, can have a couple of different meanings. For instance, I could be here preaching as you are sitting there. And in that construction, it means that we're both doing the same thing at the same time. But they're, I mean, we're both doing something at the same time, but it's not necessarily the same thing. So I'm doing this as you're doing that. We're doing different things just at the same time. I'm not sure that that's what the Lord had in mind when he says that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I'm not sure that he's saying, I want your will to be done here at the same time that it's done there. But I think he's saying in the same manner that it's done there. The same way that it happens there, Lord, let it happen here. And I think we'll see that later on in this model prayer. But apparently what we should seek is the will of God and the principles of God's kingdom to be executed in this world as in the same way that they're executed in heaven. By the way, in heaven, I know this goes without saying, but God's will is done to a T perfectly in heaven. Whenever he says something, it occurs. And apparently, the same thing is supposed to happen on earth as it is in heaven. And we should be those messengers. We should be those hosts here in this world that obey God's command. That when he says something, we do it. Verse 3, give us this day our daily bread. By the way, I'm reciting this mostly in the King James Version, which is what we're likely familiar with. These are, these, are, these are words that we're probably very, very familiar with in our lives, and there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, sometimes the newer translations put a twist on them. We're like, I thought I knew what that meant, but just for familiarity's sake, give us this day our daily bread. Notice that our needs are presented to God after we ask him for his will to be done in our lives. So, Lord, whatever I need now, in accordance with your will that we've already talked about, you know what I need. Please give it to me. Give us this day our daily bread. Notice it's daily. The implication is, I'm going to have to come back for more tomorrow. 
even inside of this model prayer, is the implication that it's a daily activity and it's not just a weekly or occasional practice. Give us this day our daily bread. We need to recognize and be grateful for the daily provisions of God who not only created us but sustains us to this day. Verse 4, and forgive us our sins. And again, we're going to go back to the King James on this one. As we also forgive those who sin against us. The reason I say that is because in the New King James it reads, And forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. I'm not sure that's what the verb tense means. And let me explain what I mean by this. Every one of us, according to Scripture, has sinned and come short of the glory of God. So when we come to God, we're not coming to appear, amen? We are indebted to Him and we need you to ask His forgiveness. You have a law that we have broken. And I would beg of you, be specific in that. Remember, you're in the privacy of your own home. You're in the privacy of your certain place. No one else is there. Talk to God. Have you ever seen a fake apology? You see it in the media all the time. Some person of renown, some sports figure, some politician or something like that does something incorrect, inappropriate, and hurts someone or does something illegal or something. And the apology, you can tell, is fake. It'll be something like this. If I did anything that somebody took wrong, I'm sorry. They don't mean it. They're just trying to get out of trouble, right? There's a blanket statement. I don't know what I did, but if you were hurt by it, I'm sorry. That's not how the Lord expects us to confess our sins. Apparently, he wants us to understand what it is we did and talk to him specifically. Lord, I did this thing. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. And Lord, I've also been doing this, and I I wish I weren't. But you know the struggles. And just talk to him about those specific things. Forgive us our sins. And it goes on, as we forgive those. Now, this is the more difficult part, at least for me. I love the fact that God has promised to forgive anything we bring to him. Amen? But notice that promise is in proportion that we're willing to forgive others the same way. You see what I'm saying? That God's promise to forgive us is directly proportional to our willingness to forgive others. Now, I want the Lord to forgive everything I've done, but there are some things that people have done against me that I like to kind of hang on to. And I'll take my time with it, and I'll feed that little bitterness or something like that, and pet it, and build up some resentment, you know. But I want the Lord, clean slate every day, anything I bring to you, 100% guarantee. But that's the language of the passage says, that we should, that we should expect of God only that which we give to others. I want to show you another example of this. Again, go back to the Sermon on the Mount. Go to Matthew chapter 7. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus This is perhaps one of the most often quoted passages in the Bible, and people don't know where it's found in the Bible. But it's in Matthew chapter 7, where Jesus gives us this principle. He says, verse 1, Matthew chapter 7, Judge not that you be not, what? Judged. Now, why does he say that? Does God not want us to judge between right and wrong? No. No. But notice he explains what he means if we just keep reading. Look at verse 2. For this reason, 
with what judgment you judge, you will be what? Judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Mm. So whatever you think is just to somebody else, I'm going to get justice and judgment on them. God says, all right, that's the standard I'm going to use against you. Now think about this. Do you want God to judge us according to his mercy or according to our mercy? So friends, his mercy had better become our mercy. We should not ask of God what we're unwilling to give to others. By the way, this thought hit me across the head like a two-by-four a few months ago when I found this passage. It's a rather obscure passage. I was doing a study on something else, but it's found in Manuscript Release, Volume 12, page 413. Okay? MR 12, 413, for those of you taking notes, which I hope is every one of you. See, now you have something to ask forgiveness for. There you go. (laughs) Manuscript release, volume 12, page 413. Notice this statement. Satan will be judged by his own idea of justice. It was his plea that every sin should meet its punishment. Now, you remember the story in Zechariah chapter 3 of Joshua standing before the angel of the Lord and he was dressed in filthy garments and Satan was at his right hand to accuse him? And I'm sure he had a list of all the things that Joshua the high priest had done wrong because Satan had been part of it. He had led them to those things, right? So he could stand before God and say, he has done this and this and this and he deserves to die. You cannot be a God of justice and forgive these sins. He must be ended. He cannot be taken home, blah, 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 blah. And God, of course, says, the Lord rebuke you. Is not this one plucked from the fire? And he gives him forgiveness. But commenting on this, again, think about these words. Satan will be judged by his own idea of justice. It was his plea that every sin should meet its punishment. If God remitted the punishment, he said, he was not a God of truth or justice. Now listen, Satan will meet the judgment which he said God should exercise. Satan will meet the judgment that he said God should exercise. My question for us, will we meet the judgment that we think others should be judged by, or do we want to be judged according to God's mercies? So when we look at this, forgive us our sins as we forgive others, that's a heavy thought, that we need to become more Christ-like, in our very characters, as we treat others. And finally says, And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Friends, we need to acknowledge our weaknesses and seek a life of purity by avoiding temptation. And friends, I know, if it was up to me, if it was up to you, the very first place I would go is the very last place I should be. Am I right? In my own strength, the very worst thing for me is the thing I want the most. So we say, Lord, you have to lead me and not into temptation. Now, does that mean that if you walk with Christ, there will be no more temptations? No, 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 no. Just like he says, I'll walk with you through the fire, I'll walk with you. But he's like, Lord, as you lead me, don't lead me to temptation and leave me there because I'm done for. But lead me through, lead me past, give me a way out, which, by the way, is exactly what Scripture has promised. 
Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13. The Apostle Paul writes with such power and clarity. No temptation has overtaken you except such as common to man, but God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. As you get up from your in fact, before you even get off your knees, Satan is trying to get you down that day. He's trying to distract you, to discourage you, to tempt you, to down, make your downfall happen the moment you get up. He wants you to rise up out of bed and fall flat on your face. And as you leave the house, there's going to be worse. And as you drive in the car, it's going to be worse. He's going to put other people in your path. Life would be easy if it weren't for all the other people. And then you're going to go to work. And then you go to family things. And you go to this. And you go to that. And all these different... Then you turn on the television. Then you turn on the radio. And it's just you're bombarded with all this stuff. It, we live in a world saturated by evil and its results and the temptations that Satan throws at us. But if we put our hand with Christ, he says, Lord, don't lead me into temptation, but lead me through it and provide a way out. And the promise is given that there is victory, but only in Jesus. Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. One of the most beautiful promises of victory and help found in all Scripture. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Now notice the language there. We don't have one who can't. Which you can turn that the other way, and therefore we do have one who can. We have a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. Amen? Wouldn't it be awful to go talk about the trials and troubles of the day to someone who's never had a trial or a trouble one day in their life? Mm. You know, I think it'd be a really neat thing to talk to Bill Gates someday. But I don't think he'd understand having to make the bills every month. <laughs> or at least it's been a long time since he has, right? But when we talk to Christ, when we talk to our Heavenly Father through the person of Jesus Christ, we're talking to someone who's been there, who's had that happen to him, who's been discouraged and distracted and has had those forces to contend with. Scripture makes this plain. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as what? As we are. In the same way that we are. There's that manner again. Yet, here's the big difference, without sin. Let us therefore come how? Boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. It's a powerful thing to ask the Lord, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. If we ask him, he has promised to be able to do what he says he can do. So now I'm going to try to make this intensely practical. The title of the message is Practical Prayer. How do we take this template? How do we take this model of praying and put it into our regular lives. What are some tips, some practical things to do? I, I have been convicted that more and more of our, teach, of our preaching needs to be teaching, and more of the principles need to be made more practical. All right, so we have this lofty, we should have these great ideals for prayer, but what does that look like in my life when I go home? So I'm going to give you a list of helpful, practical points on prayer. And you can take them down in your notes. Or if only one person is taking notes, they can be the most popular person and they can make Xeroxes for you. 
According to Christ's instruction and his own example, here's a good first start. Pray in a solitary place every morning. Pray in a solitary place. Find your place, that certain place like Christ had, that closet that he told you to go and shut your door in your room, or maybe it's out in the woods. I don't know what it is for you. Maybe it's a little corner of the basement or a little place at work, but wherever it is that you start your day, start it away from the mass and the crowds and don't have the TV on, don't have the internet going, have your life situated in such a way that you can have a place to talk to God. Jesus not only taught the importance of alone time with God, he lived it. We read in Mark chapter 1, verse 35, Now in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, he went out and departed to a solitary place, and there he prayed. It's best to pray before the day begins, and in a place where you can be alone and without distraction. We should do this every day. In the little book entitled Prayer, a little compilation of the writings of Mrs. White, we read in page 12, neglect the exercise of prayer or engage in prayer spasmodically, like a little spasm every now and then, it's just a twitch, a little prayer. Now and then, as seems convenient, and you lose your hold on God. Apparently, it's supposed to be a continual daily, just like Christ had a habit of prayer. Point number two, if possible, if physically able, Kneel while you pray. Now, and that may be like, oh, what's the importance of that? What does it matter what your body? Well, think about this logically. Let's say that your prayer time is the very first thing in the morning, just as you wake up, and you just lay there in bed, and you start praying. What's going to happen? Now, the prayer might start really strong, but I'm going to almost guarantee that it's going to dwindle down to a snooze. And apparently, the Lord doesn't want us to be just so haphazard and so lax, you know, so relaxed that we forget that we're in the presence of the Almighty God. But if possible, get in a posture like, like kneeling. And if you can't physically able to do that, something along those lines, you understand what I'm saying. But that can focus your attention, that you don't end up getting distracted. Like, saying, no, no, I'm going to stand up and I'm going to cook breakfast. At the, no, 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 no. Just go to that place, down on your knees, if possible, and talk to the Lord in a focused posture of prayer. By the way, Jesus did this as well. Luke chapter 22, verse 41, says he knelt down and prayed. Here's another one that we can learn from the example of Christ. Pray out loud. Think about this. Again, from Price Object Lessons 140, the disciples found him absorbed in supplication, seeming unconscious of their presence. He continued praying aloud. Now, this doesn't mean to go to that far extreme so that you're not doing it loud so that other people can hear you. You're not doing it loud to be like, okay, I'm just doing this to be loud and it feels really awkward. No, 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 no. The purpose of saying things out loud is because you remember those things that you're saying and you articulate them better. It's actually like a conversation. I don't know if you've understood this or not, and I don't know what happens in your head, praise the Lord, but I know what happens in my head. If I start a train of conversation, but it's only in my head, all of a sudden this other idea pops up and this other thing comes in, all of a sudden it gets kind of lost in the fog a little bit, you know? But if I have to speak to someone, it's much better to stay on topic if you're actually engaged in conversation. I was having this, this discussion with a, a scholar the other day, and it, it's fascinating that God built us 
with language. You know, we don't just look at things and react or just kind of grunt and snort. At least, I hope we don't. But he gives us speech. He gives us patterns of thought. But not only do we have it here, but we express it out of our mouth. He he engages us in conversation. In fact, God could have written his whole book in pictographs, right? Or hieroglyphics and just kind of flip through it and like, oh, I get a picture of God. No, he said, these are words. I want you to think of these ideas and communicate them with others. And in our communication with him, it should be the same thing. Speak to him. Another tip, number four, pray earnestly. Again, Luke chapter 22, verse 44, an example of Christ praying, it says, being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Apparently, as things get more difficult, your prayer should be proportionally more earnest. Now, I can tell you one of the temptations in my life is when things get hard to take the control to myself. I don't have time for this. I know how to run this. I don't want to stop. Just let me take control. Let me handle this thing and I'll get back to prayer when things are easy. But according to Christ's example, when things got hard, that's when he was pressed to pray even more earnestly. In fact, we're told in the book of James, James chapter 2 and verse 16, the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. So pray earnestly. Number five, similar to that, pray consistently. Or persistently, I should say. Play persistently. In Matthew chapter 7 and Luke chapter 11. In fact, we'll just stay right there. If you're still in your Bibles at Luke chapter 11, look down at verse 9. So I say to you, and we'll just read verse 5 through. Give the context. He finishes up with that model prayer, and then he goes right in the very next words, verse 5. And he said to them, Which of you shall have a friend and go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has come to me on his journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within and say, Do not trouble me, the door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give it to you. I say to you, though he will not rise and give it to him because he is a friend, yet because of his persistence he will rise and give as many as he needs. So if he's grumpy at first, like, No, I don't have time, keep knocking. (laughs) He's like, you don't understand. I really need this. No, no, you're going to be, I need, come back again. Have you ever noticed that sometimes our prayers that we ask don't get answered that day? Does that mean the Lord has failed us? Of course not. We just come again another day. We just keep going, right? And that's the premise of his next words. Verse 9. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who knocks it will, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be open. Now, in the Greek that this was originally written, we think of knock as an, an event. Ah, that was a knock, and now that it's done, it's a past tense. It knocked, right? But in the original language, what Christ is saying, and you find this in a few Bible translations, like the Amplified Bible, it's keep knocking. Keep asking. Keep seeking. It's a continued concept. In fact, in the little compilation book called Prayer, page 71, Ellen White wrote, God does not say, ask once and you shall receive. Unwearingly persist in prayer. 
Persistence in prayer is not to appease or persuade God, but to prepare our own hearts for the answer he's going to give. Earnest, persevering prayer will change your heart to be more in line with his. Number six, pray in faith. When we pray, we should believe that God hears and answers our prayers according to his wisdom. Now, we may not get the answer that we think we want or we think we need, but we will get an answer. And we need to believe that God, the God that we talk, that we talk to will answer. Mark chapter 11, verse 24, Jesus himself says, Therefore I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them, and you will have them. And again, that's according to God's will. By faith, we may present before God the promises of his word. And if God has promised it, he has, that is exactly what it is, a promise to do what he says. Number seven, pray for purity of character. Pray for purity of character. Again, we're not asking the Lord to make us what we want us to be, but the Lord to make us what he wants us to be, that we should seek his will first. And I've noticed that we may be able to change outward behavior through strong willpower. We can, for a time, do a good thing or put up with some endurance. But true, genuine conversion and a change of the heart and a change of the character can only come from God. He's willing to give it, but he wants us to ask. By the way, how does he do it? He sends the Holy Spirit, which brings us to our next point. Pray for the Holy Spirit. Still in Luke chapter 11. Remember that persistent asking, seeking, and knocking? It goes on in verse 11 to say, of Luke 11, If a son asks for bread from any father among you, will you give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will you give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or, Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give? And he doesn't say, whatever you ask for. He says, how much more will, the, will the, your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? By the way, what does the Holy Spirit... Now, this is an interesting cycle. Think about this. We ask the Father for what we need, and he gives us what we truly need, which is the Holy Spirit. Then what does the Holy Spirit do for us? Teaches us what we should ask for. Right? Watch this. Romans chapter 8, verse 26. Romans 8, verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses. So when we go to the Lord, by the way, boldly before that throne of grace and ask for help in time of need, and we have need because we have weaknesses, what does the Lord send us? The Holy Spirit. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. So apparently... There are things in our life that we need that we don't even know we need. Perhaps there are some sins we need to confess. Perhaps there's a duty that we should be doing that we don't, aren't even conscious of. Perhaps there's something we need that God knows we need, and when we ask for the Holy Spirit, He gives us not what we wanted, but what we actually need. So think about this. We ask for the Holy Spirit, He gives us the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit works in the heart to know what to ask for, and in return, it's a cycle where He sends us the Holy Spirit, and then we return to God. Very important one, number nine, pray for others. Now, it's fine to pray for your needs, but simply put, it cannot be the entirety of our prayer life is about us. Pray for others. 
Jesus told Peter in Luke 22, verse 32, I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. Friends, there are probably people in your life whose faith is failing and they need you to pray for them. We should pray that health and salvation be given to our families, our friends, our church members and leaders and others with whom we share God's word. Again, notice the confidence with which Paul could write to the believers in Rome. And again, this is Romans chapter 1 now, verse 9. He says, For God is my witness that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers. He's always praying for somebody else. And by the way, we should even or perhaps especially pray for our enemies. Again, that's the difficult part. Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Starting with verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. That you may be sons of your Father in heaven. And here's why. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. But would it be nice to be able, I don't know if it'd be nice or not, but it'd certainly be interesting if the Lord differentiated between the good and the evil right now by blessing only the good and cursing only the evil. Like that it was always sunshiny when we needed to be, only for the good people. And then the bad people always got the drought, and the good people always got the rain in just the right proportions. It, it's always interesting to me, we'll, we'll, have, we'll sometimes get up on a Sabbath morning and say, it's such a beautiful Sabbath day, the Lord truly is blessing us. Well, that's true, he is, but that still doesn't mean we are good. It, we, we could be evil and does the same thing. <laughs> God's nice to everybody. That's kind of his thing. And I know that sounds flippant and trite, but put it into practice. No problem praying for my family. I pray for my children. Pray for my parents, my family, my church family, those who are hurting, those who are in need. But what about that guy who just doesn't like you? Trust me, I've got a few of those. Some of you are like, "Mm mm-hmm, and I'm looking right at you. That's not nice. (laughs) You got But seriously, what about those people who don't like you, who don't love you, in fact, go out of their way to persecute you? Or even harm you. The easy thing is to pray for our friends, which we should do. But friends, we should also pray for our enemies. And again, that same, you notice the parallel there between that and the judge not? I want to be as merciful to my enemies as God is to me because the Bible says that he died for us while we were his enemies, does it not? Number 10, take time to pray. Again, we go back to the experience of Christ in Mark chapter 1, verse 35. Having risen a long while before daylight, he prayed. I don't know about you, but it takes a conscious effort to get up earlier than your body wants to. Maybe that's just me. It's okay. (laughs) But sometimes you have to make 
you have to make time for the important things. It happens in personal relationships as well. If you don't set apart time for those things that you prioritize, objectively say, okay, I need this much family time or this much time to get in wood or to work on this or to do that. If you don't put time away, the time goes away, does it not? If you don't coordinate off, all of, it's so easy to lose time and lose opportunities. And apparently God wants the highest priority in your life, the first moments of the day. So set apart time. Now, I'm not going to stand up here and say, you know, start your first two or three hours in prayer. Though if you need that, that's fine. But I'm telling you, if you even start with five minutes, it's going to seem long at first. But start. Put a little time. Put a little effort into that time. Prioritize it and set time apart to be with God. We must dedicate ample time for prayer in order to experience the life-changing power of prayer. There are no shortcuts. Taking more time in prayer can help us to get beyond mere repetition and become more earnest in pouring out our hearts to God. Now, one of the things, and this will go into our next one, number 11, work out your prayers. It seems a little bit weird, but write it down anyway. Work out your prayers. Have you ever noticed... that people who are doing things are more interesting to talk to. I guess you haven't noticed that. I've noticed that. (laughs) I've noticed in my own life, in my own conversation, if there were a day where I did just nothing and someone else were to talk to me, they did all kinds of things that day. They would go on and talk about, oh, I did this and this and this. And, oh, you should have been there. And I wanted to ask you about this. A thought struck me. I, I was reading this one thing, and oh, it was powerful. And they said, oh, what did you do today? I'm like, oh, I ate, I think. I know I was awake. And I'm ready to be done with that. <laughs> and the same thing happens in our walk with Christ. Of course, our prayer life will become shallow and vapid and hollow and empty if there's no substance with which to discuss. Does that make sense? So work out your prayers. Like once you pray for something, we're not only to pray, but to live as though we expect God to answer our prayers, get up and do something. Jesus' life was spent between the mountain and the multitude, between prayer and ministry to others. Uh, The best way to put this, Steps to Christ, page 101. Think about the power of this. He who does nothing but pray will soon cease to pray. I'm going to say it again. He who does nothing but pray will soon cease to pray. If your only life is the prayer life and you don't have a life outside of that, what do you have to talk about? Right? He who does, not pray, who does nothing but pray will soon cease to pray or his prayers will become a formal routine. You might pray but you're just going to talk about the same stuff over and over and over and over. When men cease to work earnestly for the master, they lose the subject matter of prayer and have no incentive to devotion. If you're not doing anything in the cause of God, what is there to talk about to God? So not only are we to pray, but then we're to work 
and then come back and report and get further instruction and communicate with God and have an active dialogue with our Heavenly Father. And number 12, pray even when you don't feel like it. And let's go back again to the example of Christ. He went to the synagogue every Sabbath, as the Bible says, as was his custom. But he didn't just go on the days when it felt good. In fact, there were many days, and Scripture records that most Sabbath days were not days that people were very fond of Jesus. Well, those receiving his ministry were very fond of them, but those witnessing his ministry, those who were opposed to his ministry, went out of their way to persecute Jesus on Sabbath. They would nitpick him. They would talk bad about him. They would give false accusations against him. In fact, they would try to kill him. But after a Sabbath where he had a painful, awful, difficult time, there were Sabbaths where they tried to push him off a cliff, stone him with stones, call him names. You know what he did next week? Went right back. The same thing is true in our devotional life. Satan will go out of his way to make it miserable to make it the least appetizing thing so that you don't want to get that refreshing connection with the Father that we each so richly need. So whether you like it or not, keep going. Luke chapter 18 and verse 1, Jesus says this, Men always ought to pray and not lose heart. The implication is you can start to pray and you can become distracting or discouraging or this and that. Don't lose heart. Just keep going. It's a fatal mistake to be irregular in prayer, to pray only when we feel close to God or when we sense a special need. This is a beautiful passage, again, from prayer, page 298. On the contrary, when we feel that we have sinned and and cannot pray, it is then the time to pray. Think about the power of that. When you think you can't pray or you don't want to pray, that's the time you need the most prayer. That's the time to pray. A consistent prayer life doesn't come naturally. Spiritual things are spiritually discerned. The natural man is foolishness. But God says, taste and see. It requires faith, time, and commitment. If we lose sight, if we lose heart and become inconsistent in our prayers, we'll open the door for the enemy to come in. Steps to Christ, we have this ominous passage. The darkness, this page 94. The darkness of the evil one encloses those who neglect to pray. With stakes this high, friends, we cannot afford to neglect secret prayer. And again, I'm not preaching to you, I'm preaching to me with this. We're living in a world continually devoid of Christian principles. The darkness is getting deeper and we need the light of Christ's word and the abiding faith that can only come through prayer in him more now than ever before. Individually, personally, privately, and collectively, publicly and openly. But friends, we need that connection with the Lord more than ever before. So here's my challenge. Begin your day with at least five minutes of personal prayer time. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.